We've decided not to send Harry along to that holiday club at your church this year, said Debbie to her fellow parent, Rona, at the school gate. Oh, said Rona in surprise. He had such a good time last year. Oh, yes, said Debbie. He loved the games, but it was all those Bible verses and stories about Jesus. Adam and I have decided that we want Harry to make up his own mind on these things when he's older. We ourselves are neutral on these matters. We don't want him brainwashed. Now, many secular parents in the UK today are quite proud of the fact that unlike evangelical Christians of their acquaintance, they do not engage in indoctrination. And such comments as Debbie's to Rona, which is a real conversation that was told to me, those kind of things can make a Christian parent wobble. Should we back off the Bible stories? Should we soft pedal the scripture songs? Now, this is a seminar, and I'm going to make you do some work. Just talk amongst yourselves how you deal with Debbie's challenge, if she said it to you. Go on, talk amongst yourselves. How would you deal with that? Are we brainwashing our children? You see, the first thing we need to be clear about, and probably many of you have said this, the first thing we need to be clear about is that nobody, but nobody, is neutral on these matters. Challenge that ridiculous idea wherever you meet it. Neutrality is a myth. Every parent, every person has a view on spiritual things. Debbie and Adam are proud of their neutrality, but if refusing your child's permission to hear about Jesus is neutral, well, I'm a flower fairy. It's nonsense, isn't it? Their neutrality is an emphatic stance for secular, atheistic materialism. And it'll come through loud and clear to Harry through every similar choice and decision his parents make. There's no neutrality. So so if ever you've trembled at the thought, oh, am I indoctrinating? They think I'm brainwashing my kids. Don't tremble at that. Empty rhetoric, that is. What is it, but let's talk about this a bit more. What is it that Adam and Debbie and people like that, parents like that, quite sensible, intelligent parents, what is it that they really fear? I'll tell you what they fear. They fear the power of truth claims. One of the big headlines in postmodernism, which is the world which, like it or not, we inhabit, is that truth is, all truth is personal. I referred to this at the beginning of my talk earlier. In other words, they want to say that truth is not out there, it's in here. I, I, it's in the person who believes it. Therefore, your non-Christian friend may be truly delighted that you have a faith, but that's nothing to do with her or him. And if you should try at any point to persuade him or her, they're likely to be either totally impervious, you know, what's it got to do with me, or quite angry. Because for the postmodernist mindset, well, they believe that all truth claims are a power play to control someone else's life. Therefore, they should be ditched or at least privatized. 
How dare you challenge my right to believe what I want to believe? And many people, and again, I referred to this earlier, have spotted the illogicality of the postmodern position and have expressed it better than I will. It comes down to this, as I said before. The statement, there is no absolute truth, is itself a truth claim, so the argument self-destructs. But the assumption remains, you know, I'm neutral. You're biased. She's downright brainwashed. See, but it, you know, they always assume they're the neutral ones. Let's just talk a bit more about indoctrination versus teaching. There is in the Bible, well, the Bible's quite clear that what Christians should do is teach, not indoctrinate. There is a difference. Here are some points of distinction. Indoctrination lets its subjects into only some of the information. The rest is guarded and kept in the hands of an elite. Think Stalinist Russia. Think North Korea. But teaching is opening a door to everything with nothing to hide. Second point, indoctrination forbids questions, whereas teaching, on the other hand, thrives on questions as the route to learning more. Third point, indoctrination works on its subjects to make them unresisting to the message. By means, for example, say of tiring them out, of weakening their will, or working at the emotional level. Teaching, on the other hand, never bypasses the mind, but seeks to engage it. So the Apostle Paul is, the, is an example of somebody who taught Yes, he proclaimed the truth, but he did it by means of discussion, argument, and reason. We haven't got time now, but you could look up, if you want to later, uh, Acts 19, verses 8 to 10, where you'll see the work of Paul described. And he's discussing, he's dialoguing, he's, he's arguing, he's reasoning. And Paul famously instructed those saved by God's mercy to be transformed by the renewing of their minds, Romans 12, verse 2. The Christian faith is eminently reasonable. So when it comes to passing on the baton of truth to our children, which, as we shall see, certainly falls within the job description of a parent... We, we know straight away, then, that we are not in the business of forcing a mantra on our children or of making assumptions about them. I'm just saying, well, of course they'll be Christians, because I'm a Christian. We don't make those assumptions, do we? In the way that, say, a Muslim might. We don't make those assumptions. But nor do we force a mantra on them. We will teach them. We will engage their developing minds. And this will be in keeping with Paul's instruction in Ephesians 6 verse 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. When Moses was on the very edge of the promised land with his new generation Israelites... 
That is after the 40 years wandering in the wilderness. He's got a new generation there. He reiterated to them God's expectations of them in the book we know as Deuteronomy, Second Law. That's what that means. He was aware that they would be living in a unique way, very much against the tide of the surrounding nations. In fact, that was the point. They were to live in a distinctive way, not just because it was the best way to live, but because they were to show God to the world as keepers of God's revelation about himself. They were to live it and pass it on to the succeeding generations so that God's name and his ways, as well as his line, would not vanish from the earth. So as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we who've been let into the mystery of God, namely Christ, that's Colossians 2.2, we have a responsibility not only to live in Christ's ways before a watching pagan world, but also to guard the gospel, that's 2 Timothy 1.14, and pass it on to others intact, not least the next generation. That's the big job of a mother. In facing the challenge of passing the baton of truth in our very secular culture, we have a lot to learn from Moses' words to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 6. I wonder if you could turn there, because we're going to use this to pick out some things to learn about passing on the baton. Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm just going to read verses 1 to 4. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel. And be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So that spells it out. As the people enter the land, they are to be careful, verse 3, not only to walk in God's ways themselves, but to have an eye to the future, their children and their grandchildren. And that remains a parent's responsibility. It's not first and foremost the job of a Sunday school, or they will do valuable work and they'll back you up and they'll do all sorts of things. But it's first and foremost your job. Your children, your job. And the foundation of the teaching is summed up in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the situation. This is the situation which makes your home different from your neighbors, unless they happen also to be Christians. God is there. God is. That's the big thing in your home. You're living your lives in this knowledge that God is. Is. Hallelujah. That's what keeps us sane. 
There is one God, our loving creator and redeemer, eternally perfect, self-existent, and self-sufficient. When we teach our children that and live that, we are, we are simply deca- declaring what is the case. This is how it is. Now, no Bible-believing Christian would deny that Christianity is a truth claim. That is the wonderful thing about it. The truth is out there. You didn't make it up. Whether you believe it or not, God is. It's a truth unchanged, unchanging about an eternal, self-existent God. People may not like it at some points, but that won't make it go away. So then we come to our duty in verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. You see, it says that before it gets to talking about what you do with your children. This is the pre-requirement. Now, it might sound obvious, but the more we think about God's word, the better we will be at passing it on. And we won't think about it unless we love the Lord. Sometimes we just want, we so so want our children to be Christians. Sometimes we almost want that more than we want to grow in our own Christian faith. But the prerequisite is that we're to love this God with a sincere love, with a strong love, with a superlative love. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, defines the love of God in the following way. Be well pleased with him, desire that he may be ours, and delight in contemplation of him and communion with him. Now, if we don't do this, we are very likely to drop the baton of truth because we're not gripping it tightly enough ourselves. We're letting it go. What we have to pass on is not just a matter of fact or doctrine. It's a passion. And where it fails to be so, we should not be surprised if our children let it go. So that's a huge challenge right at the beginning. But now we're going to look, for our remainder time, we're going to look at Deuteronomy 6. And we're going to find seven top tips about passing on the baton. Okay, here they are. I'm going to go through quite quickly, but with, with one or two, I might spend a bit more time. The first one is, think about it, you see. Verse 6, these commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. So, as I said just now, if we love Lord, the Lord, then we should be thinking about him. The more we think about God's word, the better we'll be at passing it on. Now, I've got a husband who loves football. And I've got three sons who do the same. I've got three boys and one girl, okay? My daughter and I, when, when they were teenagers, they were all at home, my daughter and I were sometimes astonished at the ability of the four of them to recall, describe, dissect, and analyze a detail of a match which took place maybe months ago, even years. How could they do that? Answer, because in the meantime, they thought about it a lot. I might sometimes see one of them deep in thought and ask what was on his mind. Perhaps I hoped he was pondering on a deep life issue. But no, he was thinking about whether the formation in such and such a match would have been better 4-4-2. Some of you know what that means. 
<clears throat> my boys thought about football a lot. Now, imagine how good we could be at talking, not to mention living the gospel, <clears throat> if we thought about it more. If our minds went to it in our spare moments. It all comes from that love of God, the prerequisite, of course. But as I often say to my Sunday school teaching team, there's no substitute for preparation. And the best preparation is that you just, you know, just, you just have it there bubbling away, thinking about it. When you read your Bible in the morning, and I hope you do, even if you only read a couple of verses, take something with you into the day and think about it at odd moments. Let it bubble away. It'll do you so much good. And the more we have it in us, the more we will be able to pass it on. So that's top tip number one. Think about it. Number two, teach it. Verse seven. Impress them on your children. The King James Version of the Bible uses the words, teach them diligently. You shall teach them diligently. And in the margin of my King James Bible, it says the verb is from the Hebrew to wet or to sharpen. I love the idea of sharpening up the minds of our children through scripture truth. And again, note how far this is from indoctrination. It's a million miles from indoctrination. It might be helpful to think about what is the content of this instruction now. So for a few minutes, we're going to get really practical. How parents might engage in doing this teaching. Not everyone is a natural-born teacher. But there are other places in the Bible which give us clues as to the curriculum for a growing child. So I'm just going to see what that might include and give you some hints here under this section, Teach It. First of all, it should include teaching about the nature of God. You get that in Psalm 145, don't you? One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. Do you see what you're doing? One generation is to tell the next generation what God is like. With young children, this can be wonderfully done through Bible stories. In fact, that's the way it is itself done in Scripture. You want your children to be thoroughly well-versed in them. And the safest application is always along the lines of, what do we learn about God here? That's safe ground. Although the stories in the Bible also give us examples to follow and warnings about what to avoid, and 1 Corinthians Chapter 10, verse 11 tells us that that's a legitimate way to use scripture. You need to be careful with those, lest we kind of, our children, because children are all legalists by nature, you know, and we don't want to teach them to treat all of scripture in a moralistic way. You know, we've got to be brave like David. No. We've got to be glad we've got a champion we're not identifying with David in that story. We're the, we're the, the not-need Israelites, aren't we? Going, ah, can't do this. Need a champion. And God provides one. And of course, it points forward to Jesus. Do you see? That's a much better way. In all your stories, see, what am I learning about God here? 
lest we just, you know, have a little moral, which in the end comes down to, you just be good and behave. <laughs> you don't want that. You don't want them, because that's, in the, in the end, that, that's against the gospel. Of course we want them to be good, but we need to be careful about always having that application. So we need to teach the nature of God, big that up, the greatness the joy of God, the goodness of God, the love of God, the power of God, the wrath of God, the nature of God. Next, we need to teach the way of salvation. You find this in 2 Timothy 3, verse 15. It's all about Timothy. Paul is referring to the infancy of of Timothy. And Timothy was taught from infancy by his believing mother and grandmother. And we should not be afraid to teach our children the gospel because that's what Timothy learned. He learned the way of salvation. So what are the main points of the gospel? That God made us, that we sinned, that Jesus came to rescue us and we must trust in him. Now, a young child can begin on on that kind of, in a way, it's systematic theology, if you want the posh name for it. The great doctrines of the Bible. And a young child can do that via a simple catechism. Who made you? God made me. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make all things? For his own glory. Where do we learn about God? In the Bible. And so on. You can get hold of those. Simple children's catechisms. Now, when I had my children, which was eons ago, right? But um, I found it really hard to get hold of materials. There are plenty of materials which will, with lovely books about, you know, how God made the world. There was loads of stuff about Noah. And there are a lot of books about Noah. But the trouble is most of them make it ever so pretty and all about the animals and how sweet that was. Actually, the story of Noah is the story of judgment. But those, they're a bit too pretty for that, so judgment rarely comes in. And I was very frustrated by this, so we were trying to teach our children the catechism, and I, I made up a, a story, just using the toys from the toy box, really. So I had a little train, I had a little horse, I had a little knitted soldier, and I had a, a peculiar leggy doll, which I didn't like much. <laughs> anyway, from this I can concocted a story. It's called Ferdinand the Engine. I only tell you about that because that's just one idea and it is, it is now after about 30 years in print and it's on the bookstall and if you buy it today there's a CD with it which you, you don't get normally when you buy the book but, you can, but I've brought some. A CD so you can play it. And, and it, it begins children on systematic theology. Why don't we teach our children scripture truth, the big truths? Paul includes in his list of elementary truths, that's in Hebrews 5.12, such subjects as repentance, faith, baptism, the last things, and judgment. They're the elementary truths, ladies. Don't miss them out. Parents should cover the ground, not just stick with stories which dumb down or make twee the great teachings of the Bible. Thirdly, we should teach the whole Bible story, the whole story, because 
The Bible is one big story. Let's teach our children the whole big picture of God's purposes in the world. So Psalm 78, verse 3 and 4. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from our children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. And, it be- and then it be- begins, as a lot of the Psalms do, to recount the stories of creation and redemption, getting the big sweep. We should do that. A sense of, so we've got systematic theology. We also need biblical theology. Children need both. In fact, a growing child will enjoy following the thread through scripture of God's covenant plan and his redemptive purposes. And many other Psalms take this overview approach to meditate and adore God. And there, these days, actually, in because this has now become quite trendy, the big picture, there are some really good resources available. You may have some. I particularly like the Jesus Storybook Bible, but there are other ones. And I'm sure if you look on the bookstall, you'll find some of them. It's often good just to get a new resource, isn't it? You, know, just, you need more than one story Bible, a new resource. It's good. And fourthly, we need to teach our children how to live to please God. We're not going to apply the Bible all the time and say, so you must be a good boy. But we do want to teach our children how to live to please God. And in a way, that's the immediate context of Deuteronomy 6. But, but a great book for this is the book of Proverbs. It expands on it in a way that's very accessible to children. Because a lot of the Proverbs, that collection of sayings, some of them are really funny. If you can get hold of a topical arrangement of Proverbs, as your children get older, you can enjoy it together, you know, learning one for the day. All sorts of practical things, like about laziness, about controlling your temper, about sex, about the things that God hates. There's loads of stuff, and it's excellent, and it's very practical, and they, and they make quite a good thing to do. So here's a f- that, I'm just chucking those out to you. Your curriculum should include all those aspects. Now, the implication, to get back to Deuteronomy, of impressing these things on your children, is that within your daily family routines, you make time for God. Isn't that what it means? Call it what you like. Do it when it suits. At breakfast, after supper in bed. But as in all aspects of child rearing, routines are your friend. Routines are your friend in discipline. Routines are your friend in hygiene, you know, in bedtime, meal times. They're your friend because what a routine says, certain things here are unquestioned. It's just what we do. And that's what you want with your Bible reading, an unquestioned routine where expectations are clear. So start young and start small, but establish a pattern which you can maintain. You know, don't have grandiose ideas. Don't go for the half hour and, you know, and the sermon and start. Don't do that. Whether it's after breakfast or after tea or at bedtime is up to you. We had a short family time at the end of breakfast, and we did individual Bible reading and prayer with each of with each of our children at bedtime. And eventually the bedtime routine was something they took on independently. A habit was established, which we then left them to maintain. Your family life may call for something different. The important thing that a non-negotiable routine is established. And my advice about how you conduct these times is that you keep in mind these three watchwords. Short, lively, age-appropriate. 
short, lively, age-appropriate. Short, it's good to be short because it won't become an intolerable burden to you or your child. Leave them wanting more, going, ah, oh, when you say, I'll tell you more about that tomorrow. Okay? Lively, with little children, tell stories. Perhaps you can just tell them. Children love that. You could do it. Some of you think, oh, no, I've got to read it. Sometimes you can read it, but sometimes just tell it, eyeball to eyeball. Or maybe you can use props, you know, those little play people, and you know, around the breakfast table. We used to do that. It's fun. Or you can use pictures. And there are some lovely children's Bibles with wonderful illustrations. Some are exquisite. Some are very thorough. You know, they have their different pluses and minuses. Some are very good at showing, as I say, what the whole Bible is about. You might teach and sing songs which help the child to remember a story or some teaching. You might use other books which help children understand what the Bible is teaching. For example, Pilgrim's Progress. You might engage in learning some verses of scripture together, making up actions to them, you know, like deaf signs or something to them. Ten Commandments, Psalm 1, Psalm 23, Proverbs 6, Matthew 5, John chapter 1, you know, Romans 8. You'd be surprised how, children, how much children can learn at a young age. It's a great gift to them. And lively means that although you're in a routine, you're not in a rut. Age appropriate. As your children grow, you need to mature with them and adapt. And as I implied earlier, there will be a time for backing off and leaving them to discover independently the joy of reading the Bible for themselves. And there are obviously lots of Bible reading aids you can get hold of to train them in this. Okay, let's have just a few minutes because you've got ideas. Why don't you talk to the people around you about what you do? Maybe you can pass on some tips and then we'll come back to Deuteronomy 6. Just three minutes. Talk about... Your plan, your ideas. Continue those conversations at lunch. You can learn a lot from other people's ideas. And often what you need to do is just, sometimes you just need to start a new thing. You know, a bit of variety is good. And you can learn from what other people do. You might, between the people in this room, there's a, a reservoir of excellent ideas. But I've got a lot more tips to give you because we've only done two. Number three, I've got to whiz through some of these. Talk about it. You see, it says in Deuteronomy 6, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. In other words, do not box God up into your family prayer times and then carry on as if he was not there. You can talk about God any time, not in a forced and artificial way, but simply because he is a part of all of life. Surely many of those slightly bizarre to us ritual laws we find in Leviticus about, you know, fringes on garments and gardening and cooking were there to remind people that they're his people in the bedroom and the kitchen and in the garden. Everywhere. He's the God of our whole lives. He has a view on just about everything. That does not mean you have to bring him into every conversation in a sermonizing kind of way. But it might be helpful to let his point of view pop up occasionally. As our children got into their teens, we find that conversations at mealtimes about news, current events, and media often led to really sparky conversations ranging over theology, different worldviews, and the Christian life. You need to make the most of those. 
just in conversation. The current equivalent of walking along the road, which we have here in verse 7, might be when riding in the car. And then again, this can be a really good time for talking on serious things, especially when you're just one-to-one, say, with your teenager. But with younger children, a good set of CDs to play and sing along to can make a journey pass happily and be really instructive. And many of you will know of Colin Buchanan. I think he's done Christian families a great service with his prodigious output of songs for children. If you don't know about him, Google him and find out. He's got, there may be some of his stuff on the bookstall, I don't know, but it's worth checking out because children love those songs and they're solid, full of truth. Okay, now tip number four, take it in. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates, verses eight and nine. The custom still observed by some Orthodox Jews of having little boxes attached to the head and the wrist and the door frames comes from this verse. But surely God was meaning that his word should be frequently ingested. The Israelites lived before printing, but they were to remember that God has revealed himself in his written word. And to put it bluntly, if Almighty God has bothered to write it, we should take time to frequently read it, meditate on it, learn it, memorize it. And with all our printed Bibles and other excellent aids to reading, how seriously are we taking our Bible reading? Do I, this is the thing. Do your children sometimes catch you at it? Reading the Bible, I mean. Do they? Do they know there are times when you and your husband are not to be disturbed because you are praying together? Not a bad thing. If they do, they will understand how crucially central God's word is. Tip number five, tremble to forget it. Verse 12, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Moses interrupts his direct instruction with an aside in verses 10 to 12. He looks into the future to days of prosperity as well he might because God has promised to prosper his people. But prosperity is very dangerous. Look around your church. You'll probably see quite a lot of prosperous families. And there are a number of factors there. Not all of them are a credit to the church, but one of them certainly certainly is. And it's been noted for a very long time, since the days of the Reformation. It's been documented by historians. And the thesis is this. People who live by the Bible and love and trust the God of the Bible have a good work ethic. They also have a sensible and healthy lifestyle, embracing moderation and, and eschewing excesses of all kinds. They're dutiful citizens. They value things like reading. They keep sensible hours and they use their time well. Therefore, they prosper in business. Their children do well at school and tend to avoid some of the pitfalls of youth. And they, in their turn, grow up, advance in their careers, marry happily and faithfully, and go on to raise happy and healthy children. Do you see the pattern? A measure of prosperity often goes hand in hand with living God's way. It does. But prosperity is dangerous. It can make you self-satisfied and complacent because you are so very comfortable and have such a very pleasing way of life. That is when you take your eye off the ball, or let's get back to the original metaphor, you drop the baton, ladies. That's when you'll drop the baton. You forget it was the Lord who's given you 
every good thing you have in your life and in your home. And so your spiritual disciplines slowly slide into oblivion or into a little bit of an appendage to your life, increasingly meaningless, just one among a, a number of lifestyle cho- choices with no vitality there. And your children will notice you won't fool them. Tremble. In the, day, in the good times, it's in the good times. Sometimes we think the bad times are danger times. In the Bible, God gives lots of warnings about being very careful in the good times. When we think we can get on quite, we actually don't need God all that much because we're managing it now. We've got it sorted, thank you. Tremble over that. Next, top tick, target it visibly in your life. Verses 13 and 14. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. And verse 18, do what is right and good in the Lord's sight. And again in verses 13 to 19, Moses calls the parents back to living for God alone. Some Christian parents feel a tension between living for God and raising their children. They shouldn't, but they, they have this fear that if they put God first, i.e. above their families, this will somehow be to the detriment of their families. That's a lie from the pit. One of the greatest modern idolatries is idolatry of the family. Hear the words of Jesus. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. But as we love and serve God, and as that love and service translates into love and service for others in our churches and communities for the gospel, our children have a chance to see the joy of living for something other than yourself. They see it lived out. They need to see that at work. It's not just talk. Don't rule it out for their sakes. For their sakes, do it. Let them know it's that important. That's why You know, we're going to the evening service. That's why we're making sure one of us is at the prayer meeting. It's that important. Because God is. And because we're not just living for this life. We're living for eternity. So target that. Tip number seven, testify. Look at verses 20 to 21. In the future, when your son asks you, What is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out. Now, the daily, weekly, monthly, and annual routines of our lives reflect our priorities. There's a reason why we do the things we do. And God wanted the Israelites to use the the turning seasons of the year as memory points. That's why he said, you know, have your sacrifices and your annual festivals and observe them carefully as, a, as an aid to memory so that they'd never forget what God had done for them and they'd never forget their dependence on him. So as Christian families, it's a good idea to set up routines which display the fact that Jesus is Lord So there'll be the times that you pray and read the Bible together. You'll be part of a local church and faithfully attend its gatherings on the Lord's Day and at other times. And at particular times of year, a Christian family may choose to particularly remember the incarnation of Jesus Christ or his death and resurrection. 
And you may have ways of doing that in your home, which are personal to you. That's great. Whatever those routines are, make them meaningful and reasonable and be prepared to explain what you do and why. Now, at the beginning of this talk, I pointed out that one of the differences between indoctrination and teaching is that teaching allows and invites questions and welcomes them as an opportunity to explain further. Now, that's what's going on at the end of Deuteronomy 6 and elsewhere, actually, in the Pentateuch. There's lots of times when it says, when your children ask you, explain. We were slaves in Egypt. And the whole last section in verses 20 to 25 of Deuteronomy 6 underlines the importance of personal testimony. We're not just passing on some useful ideas. You know, like you might teach your children how to operate a bank account. It's not that, or how to cross the road safely. That's not what we're doing here. We're talking about a God we know, a Savior who loves us and died for us personally. The Israelites returned again and again to the story of their rescue from slavery. Again and again, and it comes out. It's the big story of the Old Testament. Again and again in Psalms and in the Prophets, it's referenced because it is the archetypal story of the Old Testament. And as such, it is a prefigurement of the greatest redemption story, the greatest one in the world. Our children will learn the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. But they also need to hear from you the story of how you came to know that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. That's your equivalent of we were once slaves in Egypt. Do you see? Testify. In the end, that's why you want to pass on this truth more than you want to pass on anything else, because it is a transforming truth, a life-changing truth. We, need, we must never forget that our children need to be converted. And one place to start is tell them of how you were converted. God invades our lives and makes us new. He's done it for me and he can do it for you. The very fact that the Bible calls upon parents to train and instruct their children, and the words in Ephesians 6 verse 4 can equally be translated discipline and admonition, reminds us again that our children are naturally wayward. They need God to open their blind eyes. They are dead in their sins. However cute they are, they are dead in their sins until God raises them. So all your faithful teaching will not guarantee that they become Christians. God has children. He doesn't have grandchildren. Until your children receive Christ, believe in his name, and therefore become his children, they aren't, they're not saved, they're lost. They don't get to heaven on your ticket. So, is there no advantage then to being born in a Christian home? Of course there is. Your child will hear the gospel. 
Your child will see the gospel lived out. Your child will be prayed for. And that's a whole ministry of its own, which I haven't had time to talk about now. That's just three advantages. And you have every reason to trust that as you pray for your children, that God will make himself known to them personally, that he will answer and that the gospel will bear fruit in their lives. It may not be at the time you would like. Sometimes it's early. Sometimes it's late. Sometimes with children in Christian homes, it's hard to say when it is because with some children from Christian homes, their hearts are receptive and it, it's almost as though as they learn more about God, they, they kind of want to put their hand up and say, I want to be saved. And they, they might do it lots of times. You might pray that prayer lots of times. That's fine. Because it's as they're, as they're understanding more, they're saying, yeah, and I believe that bit as well. And yeah, I'm responding to that bit. It's okay. Don't make a big deal. That's sometimes how it works. But your diligent teaching, even, even if it's a, a, you know, you're waiting a long time, your diligent teaching will ensure that in their minds they've got all the right hooks so that one day when they hear the gospel again, there'll be the day when it'll all make sense. But you won't have wasted your time. You'll have given them all the right hooks to hang it on until God opens their eyes. Or, as I say, they'll respond regularly, trusting Christ increasingly in proportion to their growing understanding. God works in different ways, but he does work by his spirit and through his word. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. So help us, Heavenly Father, to pass on this life-changing truth to our children, that in their generation, they will love and treasure it and love the Savior and in turn pass it on to their children after them, to your eternal glory. Amen.